Hi, I'm Ms. Tyler, and welcome to this week's episode of Context for Kids, where I teach you guys stuff most adults don't even know. If this is your first time hearing or if you've missed anything, you can find all the episodes archived at contextforkids.podbean.com, which has them downloadable, or at contextforkids.com, where I have transcripts for readers, or on my Context for Kids YouTube channel, where I now post slightly longer video versions. Parents, we do have to talk about circumcision this week, so if that's too sensitive a subject for you, then a lot of Genesis 17 is going to be a, min a mystery. And yes, I'm talking weird because I am sick, and you just got to deal with it. Don't worry, I won't be too graphic, but you might want to listen to this or read this on my website before your kids listen. I'll also, I'm planning right now on doing a special episode on my grown-up channel about this subject to help you teach it. Okay, so we're about to get into part of the Bible where God is going to start making big changes in Abram's family compared to all the other families on the earth. Some of them can be really confusing and hard to understand. Some seem cruel and maybe even a bit crazy, but they were all necessary. But why? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today because Genesis 17 is going to seem really bizarre if we don't take the time to understand why God is telling Abram about the need to be different and set apart. First, I think we need to talk about what set apart or holy means and what it doesn't mean. And I'm going to totally cheat and just read you two chapters from my curriculum book, The Ten Commandments and the Covenants of Promise. Now, Adam and Eve had it all. I mean, really, they had it all except for two things. They weren't God, and so they weren't allowed to eat of the fruit of one of the trees in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We've talked about this before. You know, it was, it was a garden sanctuary, and so it had to be holy. Everything in the garden was special. Holy is a very misunderstood Hebrew word, kadosh. But it's incredibly important to understand holiness, at least a little bit, if you're going to understand the importance of God's covenants and why they are there. I used to think that holy just meant super good, but that isn't it at all. Holy is a unique word that means something special, that something is set aside for an important function. To make it as simple as possible, Something is holy or kadosh if it has restrictions set up by God in the areas of time, space, things, and activities. And of course, that made no sense at all. So now I'll make it really simple. Restrictions mean limitations. In other words, there are things that are forbidden or not allowed when something is holy. A group of people are kadosh or holy if they have restrictions on their behavior set up by God. If they have no restrictions, then they're called common or profane instead. And, and whoa, that sounded kind of insulting, right? But it really isn't. Profane doesn't really mean what we say it means now. In modern language, profane automatically means something's bad. But originally it just meant what we would call secular. And secular is a word that simply means something that is not set apart by God. After all, out in the world, people have restrictions on their behavior that change over time. 
what was wrong when I was born isn't always considered to be wrong anymore. When I was born, everyone believed it was wrong to be gay, but I'm in my 50s now, and more and more people think it's right and natural. Abortion was also wrong when I was born, but now people think it's right. That's how the secular, common, or profane world works. They don't have any permanent binding restrictions placed on their lives by God, setting boundaries around their behavior. What isn't allowed today might be expected and okay tomorrow. You want to hear something unbelievable? This really surprised me. Not one person in the Bible is ever called holy. Not Noah, not Abram or Moses or anyone. Now, there is one passage where it looks like the prophet Elijah is being called holy in 2 Kings 4, 8 through 9, where the passage is usually translated as describing Elisha as a holy man of God. But it seems really strange that something like that would only happen once in the entire Bible. Now, one of my teachers once told me that it is possible to translate the verse as the man of a holy God instead. That would line up with the rest of the Bible perfectly. God is holy, Israel the nation is holy, but individual people are never called holy, not even the high priest. As individuals then, we are not holy persons, but we are a holy nation under God. The people of Israel as a whole were called holy at Mount Sinai because God personally set boundaries on their behavior. Over and over again throughout scripture, certain places are called kadosh, holy. In fact, the second time the word is used in scripture is to describe the land around the burning bush. The first time it's used is in Genesis 2 when the Sabbath is called kadosh. The next place described as holy is Mount Sinai itself and then the tabernacle because God set them apart for his own purposes. Each time a place is made holy, and of course only God can do that, we can't say that anything is holy ourselves, even, you know, as much as we might like to. Now there are things that are and are not allowed to be done in a place that's made holy by God. The ground around the burning bush was holy, and so Moses was commanded to remove his shoes when he walked there. And the priests had to minister at the tabernacle and temple barefoot too. Mount Sinai was holy when the presence of God was upon it, and the Israelites had to set up barriers around it to keep people from touching it. The tabernacle and temple grounds were holy, and the closer you got to the Holy of Holies, the more restrictions there were based on behavior, the way we act, cleanliness, and that's not like dirt on your body, but that's like ritual cleanliness, and which tribe you were born into. Only the sons of Aaron through Phineas and Zadok were permitted to come near. Even Jesus never dared to come into the priest-only areas because he would never disobey his father's commandments. Specific areas are called holy by God because there are serious restrictions. Who can approach them? 
how they can be approached and when they can be approached. There are also things that are called holy special things, okay? Things that God specifically commanded to be created in order to be used at his Kadosh times, in his Kadosh places, by specific people doing a Kadosh job, and exactly how he says they are to be done. Once something has been used for a Kadosh purpose, it can never be used for anything that is profane or ordinary. That's another good word for profane. Did you know that the priest linen garments, once they were worn out, couldn't be used for rags? They couldn't even be taken outside of the temple. They were too holy for that. It would be an insult to God, and so they remained in the tabernacle or temple forever, and they were used as wicks for the seven menorah lamps when they finally wore out. Even things like their ash shovels to, to take the ashes off the top of the altar were considered to be so holy that they would never leave the temple grounds. In fact, after the temple altar was defiled on Kislev 25, 168 BCE, by the sacrifice of a pig on it by Antiochus Epiphanes, and even after the temple was liberated and the altar stones were taken down, they still had to store them on the temple mount because they couldn't risk them being used for anything common or profane on the outside. The Ark of the Covenant was so holy that a man died once just from touching it. It was so holy that even the high priest could only come near it once a year unless the tabernacle was being transported somewhere. The feast tithes were so holy that they could only be eaten within the walls of Jerusalem during the feasts. The Passover lamb was so holy that it could not be eaten by anyone who was not circumcised. The tribe of the Levites, which includes the priesthood, are Kadosh, like the rest of Israel, but they also are Kadosh in a different way. The Levites couldn't live the same way that normal Israelites could. They couldn't have a land inheritance, and they had restrictions on where they could live and what they could do. The priests, the descendants of Aaron, had even more restrictions. For example, they had limits on who they could marry because of the holiness or kadusha of their position. The high priest had more restrictions than anyone, but going into the Holy of Holies once a year made everything worth it, I'm sure. Now, all that might sound like a drag, but the benefits of being kadosh are the perks of having a covenant relationship with the creator of heaven and earth and all that is in them. It means that we aren't the bosses of ourselves, but because we have a blessed and honored status, we don't need to be our own bosses. And none of the restrictions are terrible. None of them deprive anyone of anything we need to live. God has always wanted what's best for us. Now, time can also be made holy by restrictions on what can be done during certain times. And in fact, time was the very first thing to be declared holy. There are six days in which we do our work, and the seventh is Kadosh. But what does that mean? That means that God sets the rules about 
what will and will not be done on certain days that he says are Kadosh, and we cannot do what we want on those days if we are in covenant with him. In the Ten Commandments, there's an instruction for absolutely everyone to stop working, and it doesn't matter if you are the highest king or the lowliest pauper or even an animal. No one worked on God's Kadosh day. No one is a slave on the Sabbath. Everyone gets a day off to celebrate God's rest. Do you remember what rest means? Rest is God's enthronement on the seventh day of creation, the Sabbath day. We've talked about that before. That is the day when all of creation was meant to celebrate God as the King of Kings from the very beginning. Six days a week, we have to work at profane jobs, doing profane work, practicing for sports teams, achieving this or that. And the work is good, but it isn't kadosh. It isn't holy. Work is something that we all must do, but we shouldn't ever allow it to invade a kadosh day if we have a choice. In Leviticus 23, we see other holy times. They are called feast or moedim in Hebrew. There are restrictions on those days as well. God's people don't work on those specific days, seven days in the year that are special Kadosh Sabbaths. Two days in the spring at the beginning and end of the Passover week, a day in the late spring called Shavuot or Pentecost, and four days in the fall, Yom Teruah, Yom Kippur, and two days at the beginning and end of the eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are Kadosh days, and certain people need to be doing certain things and not doing certain other things. Some holy times, like feasts, have limitations as well as obligations. The men living in Israel were required to go to the tabernacle or temple three times a year to celebrate with God and pay tribute to Him. They couldn't just do whatever they wanted whenever they wanted, wherever they wanted, because the time was Kadosh. Working was permitted during the days between those special Sabbaths, but the men of Israel were required to be there to honor God and celebrate. They were joyous times. Certain times were called holy by God, both at creation and then again at Sinai, because God set boundaries on what would and could not be done on those days. Okay, back to this week's lesson. In Genesis 17, God is going to make some rules about what Abram and his family can and can't do, and what they have to do and don't have to do. Some of these rules that he will give later are going to be about going to certain parties, and those are the fun rules. Another rule is about only working six days a week. When, when you've worked hard, there is nothing better than having a rest day as a vacation. They won't be allowed to eat certain animals or behave in the same ways as the people around them do. They won't be allowed to worship any god except Abram's god, who Hagar called El Roi, which is the name she gave him, and who Moses will call Yahweh. Not because Moses gave him that name, but because God introduced himself by that name. They will have to dress differently, and some of the ways they will worship will be different than all the people around them. But not everything in their lives will be different from the people around them. In fact, most will be the same. Why does God tell his people to live differently? Well, there are a few reasons. Sometimes he wants his people to know that they need to be different from everyone else around them. 
That's what chapter 17 of Genesis is about. Sometimes God wants to make sure they won't be too friendly with the people around them who worship other gods. So he will make it impossible for them to eat meals with them or marry them. When King Solomon began to worship false gods at the end of his life, it was because he married women from every country under the sun and built them temples for their gods and then worshiped those gods with them. Well, that was just a huge mistake from beginning to end. And from then on, it was just a matter of time before the nation of Israel was completely destroyed. Solomon stopped remembering that God's people have to be only God's people and not every God's people. In chapter 17, God is going to tell Abram to do something that would make his entire family special in the eyes of the world and in their own eyes. That special thing is called circumcision. And again, parents, if this isn't something you want your kids to learn about, then this would be a good time to stop listening together and just go look at my transcript to pre-approve or not what I'm about to teach. In the ancient world, men who had special jobs were sometimes circumcised. In Egypt, the priests were circumcised. Circumcision is an operation that cuts away some of the skin around the end of a boy's or man's penis. If any of you boys are circumcised, it probably happened when you are a newborn baby and you don't remember. In fact, you probably didn't even remember a few hours later. Circumcision in the ancient world could be about many things. Sometimes it was something called a rite of passage, which is a ritual that changes your status in the community or in the world. Different cultures do different things to show the world that someone is a man or a woman now and part of the tribe. In some cultures, they use tattoos, cuts in the skin, rings around the neck, earrings, bracelets, and even small plates inserted into the lip. When people get married, there are all sorts of things done around the world to show that they aren't single anymore. Wedding rings are what we mostly use here in the U.S., but in other countries, they have women wear a covering over their head like in ancient Rome, or aprons like in Tibet. Sometimes married men are the only ones allowed to grow a beard or wear a prayer shawl. Doing these things shows the members of the community that you are one of them and things about your life. In ancient Rome, a head covering on a woman was a status symbol for married women who were also free. Paul wanted all the women to wear them in church so that no one would look superior to anyone else, even if they weren't allowed to wear them outside the church. But God wanted all his people to be a nation of priests, meaning they would all have access to God. That means they could pray to him without needing to go through a priest and he would hear them. So for the men, it meant they needed to be treated like priests in the ancient world from the time they were only eight days old. It doesn't mean that every man was an actual priest, but that the entire nation, men and women and children, were all set apart for God, and they were supposed to live their lives in such a way that everyone could see what God is like. Of course, you know how we all are, so it wasn't always a big success. In fact, it usually wasn't. But that was the idea, and that's what God was telling Abram. Every man or baby boy who was born into Abram's household or bought by Abram 
had to be circumcised as a sign of God's covenant with Abram. I don't know about you, but it would be way better to have that done as a baby than when you're like 99 years old, like Abram, or 13, like Ishmael. God told Abram that everyone in his household must do this as a sign of the covenant God was making with Abram to inherit the land of Canaan. And so every man who would ever inherit that land would have to be circumcised too. If they didn't, it meant they were rejecting God's land and they were rejecting God too. This was really serious business. Circumcision is one of about nine things that are called signs in the Bible. This was the second. Do you remember what the first one was? The rainbow, yeah. God called that a sign that would remind him of his promise to all the people and animals and all the earth that he would never flood the world again that he was done fighting with people and was going to save them instead. There will be other signs too. When they're about to leave Egypt, God will tell the children of Israel that throwing away all their leavened flour and eating flatbread for a week once a year after Passover was a sign. There was a special ceremony where the firstborn child in a family was set apart to God. And then of course the Sabbath. The destruction of the bronze censers at the tabernacle to make a covering for the altar was a sign. Aaron's rod in the wilderness was a sign. The memorial stones that Joshua set up in the land of Israel. And maybe phylacteries. We're not sure when they, they originally started making those, but the commandments were to be a sign on the back of the hand and the forehead. We don't know if that was supposed to be visible or, or not. Of course, these aren't the only signs in the Bible, but they're special signs that show the world that the people of Israel were separated from the rest of the world by God. And so was the land God gave them, and so was Aaron as priest. All of these signs were to remind people about God's choices. Of course, Jesus gave us some even better signs because his signs were for the whole world and not just the people of Israel. The Gospel of John tells us about the wonderful things Jesus did to prove that he was sent by God to save the world. First, he took a bunch of water jars and made the water in them into really good wine. And then he told the leaders that he would be raised from the dead in three days, but they didn't understand him and they thought he was talking about the temple in Jerusalem and it happened just as he promised it would. He totally healed a child who was about to die without even touching him. He made it so that a man who hadn't walked in 38 years got right up and walked around in front of people. He fed 5,000 people with just a few small loaves of bread and some fishes. And then he walked on the water out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. There was a man who was born blind. He had never seen anything in his entire life. Jesus made mud with his spit and told the man to go wash his eyes in one of the city pools in Jerusalem, and the man came back seeing perfectly. But that was nothing compared to the time that he raised a man named Lazarus who had been dead for four whole days. Then Jesus kept telling them that he was about to be killed by the leaders of the Jews and Romans, but he would live again after three days. But Jesus said there would be bad signs, too. 
He said that if people were always looking for signs, then they were going to get tricked. But not everyone who does amazing things is sent by God. If we're always looking for miracles and signs in the sky and stars and in the world, then we're making a terrible mistake. And I've seen a whole lot of people in my life tricked by people who wanted them to believe that the end of the world is very soon because they could recognize, you know, the signs, but they've all been wrong. And this 2000 years now almost, what we are supposed to do instead is follow Jesus and do the things he did so that everyone in the world will believe him as their king. I love you. I'm praying for you. Did you know that we've already seen all the signs we will ever need to believe that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Now we just have to live life the way he taught us.